I was worried it was getting a little dodgy in the middle part, but then that finale. <laughs> wow! Hello, and welcome to Two for One, where we discuss two movies based on the same source material. I'm Claire. And I'm David. And today we're going to be talking about Scarface. Our source material today comes from a 1930s novel written by Armitage Trail, also entitled Scarface, which itself was inspired by the real life of Al Capone. This led to our first movie, the first Scarface movie, sometimes alternatively titled Shame of a Nation, was made in 1932 and was directed by Howard Hawks. It takes place in Prohibition-era Chicago and tells the story of an Italian gangster, Tony Camonti, played by Paul Mooney, who provides the dirty work to establish Johnny Lobo as the chief bootlegger and gang boss on the South Side. Johnny Lobo is played by Osgood Perkins. Although Johnny relies on Tony to keep his power secure, he fails to rein in Tony's ambition. Aided by his right-hand man, Guino Rinaldo, played by George Raft, and a bumbling secretary, Angelo, played by Vince Barnett, Tony ignores Johnny's wishes and starts to move in on the Irish gang-controlled North Side, setting off a gang war. Tony's brash and commanding nature is also seen in his pursuit of Johnny's girlfriend, Poppy, played by Karen Morley, and his abusive control of his sister, Cheska, played by Anne Dvorak. Other notable performances in this film include Boris Karloff as one of the high-tier Irish gangsters. All right, and I'm going to cover 1983. This is one of those situations where, in broad strokes, we are following essentially the same story. Uh, the key differences here are that this movie takes place in 1980 following the Muriel Boatlift in which the Castro regime in Cuba uh, emptied their political prisons and sent entire groups of people uh, from Cuba to Florida, most of whom ended up in Miami. Uh, among these people were criminals mixed in with the political prisoners and others, and uh, our hero, or anti-hero, is one of them. So the other key differences are that instead of bootlegging alcohol, Tony is trading in illegal cocaine and he actually becomes addicted to the cocaine over the course of the movie whereas I think in the 1932 version we never really see any problems that he has with addiction. 1983 also includes a long downfall segment related to his connection with the Bolivian drug lord and this actually ends up uh, changing the finale of the movie because in 1932 Tony goes out uh, in a hail of gunfire in a shootout with the police, whereas in 1983 he is assassinated by this Bolivian drug lord. We're going to get into some of the aesthetic differences and some of that stuff, but just to run down uh, who's who in the movie. Tony Montana uh, is Cuban in this movie, replacing Tony Camonti, and he is played by Al Pacino. Tony's friend is named Manny in this movie, he's played by Stephen Bauer. Tony's sister Gina is played by Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, and Frank Lopez's wife or girlfriend, I'm not really sure, uh, Elvira, is played by Michelle Pfeiffer. This movie was directed by Brian De Palma and written by Oliver Stone. All right, so with those very similar stories in mind, we can go into thinking about what we liked and didn't like about both movies. 
Well, the motion picture teleplay was uh, respectful and exhibited tastefulness and class. Who made you an expert all of a sudden? Sure. Why don't we start with uh, some of the aesthetic differences and some of those deeper story differences that I alluded to, but maybe we can flesh, flesh those out a little bit? Yeah, I think one of the first things to point out, I mean, obviously the 1930s movie is in black and white, uh, which sort of creates a different vibe, and it has some artistic choices that, you know, I thought were very interesting. You pointed out to me that in that movie, every time someone is killed, there is an X on screen, either during the death or immediately before, and that creates, it sort of takes you out of the movie a little bit and makes it feel more like a, a piece of art that you're observing. But I thought it was an interesting choice. I mean, I didn't think it, it didn't come off as hokey or anything like that. It was just an interesting element to the way the story was presented. Yeah, I agree. I think that those, uh, I, yeah, I thought the X's was really interesting. It was really well done. And there were so many murders in this movie that like you end up looking for the X's mm -hmm. and it's like, I don't know, it, it's, it's really visually interesting, but I think because you're, you know, you're kind of like tense the whole time and you're on your, either the edge of your seat or you're on your toes trying to figure out like what's about to happen, you know, searching the entire room for an X or like, you know, just really following the, like the blocking of every scene and like where people are and what's mm -hmm. going on. Yeah, I think it's really well done. And it like even, it's not just that it's in black and white, it's, uh, it's like really grainy. I think like the film itself was really old. Uh, I mean, obviously, but uh, I think by the time it got transferred to whatever the master is now, it's kind of in bad condition because it's almost a hundred years old. But you're st like that doesn't really bother you, or it didn't bother me. I think. Who almost a hundred years old? I hadn't been conceptualizing it that way, but you're it's ninety right. years old. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I also think just of the aesthetics of that movie, the fact that it's set. In the Prohibition era, everyone is like wearing that 1920s fashion and it's very cool. I mean, the women are gorgeous, uh, which to me, I think I mentioned this to you at the time, David, but I'm just not as into the outfits and overall style of the 80s movie uh, with those suits that all the gangsters were wearing in the... It's set in the 80s, right? Mm-hmm. 1980, yeah. 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 Um, I don't know. What did you think? The 80s, as a decade, it's really all about uh, excess and being as gaudy as possible. I mean, this movie, like the 1983 version, I think does not shy away from that. Like, all the scenes at the club are, you know, loud, like, disco music and... Uh, outrageous outfits you know it's in Miami which is already a really colorful and bright uh, city and all the characters are over the top all the cars they drive are insanely 80s it's just it's it's not shy and I think that's that's part of its intention is it's supposed to be in your face with how basically like how gross everything is mm -hmm. um, you know maybe some of that is looking back on an era that we didn't live through and us seeing it a certain way, so it might be interesting to, to have someone that actually lived through it or lived through that time in the 80s and see what they would have to say, but it definitely is, is um, that's how it comes across to people like us, I think. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I agree with everything you're saying, and I think the movies are very different uh, visually, 
but a lot of those same adjectives I think could be used to describe the gangsters as they are portrayed in the in the 1930s movie as well. I mean, they also have a club or a speakeasy or something. Right. And you would, I'm sure you could say that the outfits there were a little gaudy and whatnot. I'm thinking in particular of when Cheska's at the, the speakeasy and doing her dance. Oh, She's the got the, the little flapper dress on. Yeah, <laughs> she does. Yeah, I think it's a little different because it could be at the time that uh, those were like stereotypical mob wear you know what what the men are in that movie are wearing Mm -hmm. but we just don't like really see it that way you know to us it seems like oh they're wearing suits all the time you know um and like if there's anything subtle about like the way that they're wearing their suits we're not like picking up on that right we wouldn't have the context for that it's it's a it's a little hard to compare um things like that because even with the limited context that we do have of the 80s like we know that you know tony goes from wearing T-shirts and clothes that a nobody would wear to uh, the the whole '80s thing with the collar popped above mm-hmm. the above the uh, suit collar, right? Yes. The shirt collar above the suit collar, and then from there he goes basically into full uh, three-piece suit. You know, by the time he becomes the kingpin, he's wearing you know the best suits. He's got the most beautiful woman and the best cars and like the most ridiculous mansion that anybody's ever seen we have a lot more like visual representation of of the change of of like his status yeah but i was also going to say like actual artifacts beyond his character we have cars and we have his huge mansion and everything i guess we do get we get a little bit of that we get tony camonti's new apartment in the 1930s version because he buys these steel shutters for it and Mm -hmm. he's just so proud of them you know oh i can just close these shutters and no one can get me which i mean ends up being a bit of a a foreshadowing for the the final scenes of the movie but yeah i think that there's just more to the 80s movie and i think a lot of that comes from the runtime honestly it's such a long movie it is yeah i mean that whether you like one or the other better um they're both I think move pretty quickly. I think the older one moves a little bit faster, but it is significantly shorter. It's about an hour and a half long, is mm-hmm. that right? And yeah. the 1983 version is two hours, 45 minutes. It's almost yeah, three so. hours. So that's pretty significant difference. And I don't think it's a slow movie, but we just get more of everything. And I think sometimes that's for the good, and sometimes it's, you know, it's not like necessary or it's already made its point. Yeah, seeing one right after the other, it makes it feel like it's not as tight as the 1930s movie. Yeah. Which apparently did cut out a good bit of the original novel because they were going for it to be more concise. So it's not necessarily that there was less to work with. Those were intentional choices. Yeah. Although some of those intentional choices were under pressure. Censorship. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, if you're a good movie... Yeah, let's get into um, it. You know, how did the 1932 movie come about? Like... Where did it run into problems, um, and what was the result? Sure. So uh, there's a couple different things to discuss here. Uh, It's classified as a pre-code film because it came out before the Hayes Code, sort of leading to a lot more censorship in movies. So you can read that as being that it's a lot more violent and whatnot, but I think it's just sort of an establishment of its time in the history of Hollywood more than anything else. 
But the pressure that they were receiving were from a couple different sides. Uh, it seemed very violent and that it uh, was glorifying being a gangster. Um, and it also was uh, a pretty unflattering representation of Italian immigrants as well. So all of that sort of was adding to different layers of pressure in it, which led to some interesting scenes. Uh, there was actually a completely alternate ending made originally to appease some states because states would have different regulations for what sorts of movies they would show at this point. And actually many states in the United States did not show this movie. Oh really? I, I didn't know. Uh, do you know how extensively it was, it was banned or not shown? It was five states, New York, Ohio, Virginia, Maryland, and Kansas that banned the movie as well as Detroit, Seattle, Portland, and Chicago, those cities. Um, okay, interesting. Right, so he made the alternate ending in which, rather than dying in a shootout with the police, Tony gets arrested and sees justice, and the ending scene is the judge sentencing him for um, whatever his sentence is, but adding on to it sort of a little monologue of how terrible Tony is and mm -hmm. how this is like a problem. Um, and they changed the name to go along with that. Yes, That's they where, changed the name to Shame of a Nation. That's where Shame yes. of a Nation comes from. And even though he created that alternate ending, I think uh, when he realized he wasn't going to appease censorship boards, I think pretty quickly he reverted back to his original ending with the going down in a blaze of glory. So yeah, we've got that. We've got the name change. We've got uh, title cards at the beginning. Oh, what exactly is it? It's like gangs are... Uh, nationwide problem that's being enabled because the government's not doing enough about it the yeah. government is your government what are you doing it was like it was like three different like slides in yeah. a row and each one elicited a different reaction from me yeah they were almost <laughs> like not really coherent yeah but the last one you're right was very in your face of being like actually this is like this is your fault yeah. and like i guess it's kind of a way to be like oh, this film is a call to action rather than a glorification of these things. Because you can't look at that yeah. and not think like, oh, the film is like directing you to be upset about this, to be mad about it and want to do something about it, you know? Even if the rest of the film hasn't changed. Yeah. The, that prompt, you know, changes, I guess, the way that... I think it's more directed at like the censors, but it's it's also just, you know, how you how you view the movie once... Yeah. Once you see it. And it's the sort of thing, putting something in text especially, I feel can be perceived so differently across time as well. I mean, if you had to sum up the politics of the movie, what do you think it, it was meant to say? Or do you think it was all just like, this is just some bullshit that we're saying to appease the censors? So I can make a cool gangster movie yeah. because I'm Howard Hawks and I want to you know, bring Al Capone to the screen? Yeah. I'm not sure how I would classify the politics of it. It's more a character study of just uncontrolled desire for more and control. Well, I think it's, you know, both movies are about those things. Um, but I think both movies are, like, pretty political. The 1983 version also faced a little bit of a problem getting past not the censors, but at the time uh, the MPAA, which was assigning ratings and still does they initially gave it an x rating i think because of everything going on in this movie mm -hmm. 
I think it had like the most uses of the word fuck, you know, to that point. Yeah. There's like not a lot of nudity. There's like a little bit. You know, there's a few instances of like extreme violence. Most of it you don't see directly, but you see enough. Uh, and there's a ton of drug use, a ton of talking about drugs and uh, you know, the whole thing is about a violent drug lord. Um, so there is a lot uh, that the MPA would find objectionable. So they gave it the X rating. And actually, Brian De Palma appealed the rating and made a few minor changes and sent it back to, to be re-rated. And they said, okay, we'll give this version an R. And then he said, fuck it. And he released the X rated cut oh. as an R rated movie. Oh. And he was just like, I didn't really do much to it, so I'm just going to release the version I wanted to do in the first place and hope that nobody notices, and then nobody did. So that's how he got away with the R rating. I think there are political things in there. It's about the drug trade. It's about violence. It's about like an immigrant story and like an immigrant community. But there are a few things in there that uh, it's not direct censorship or... Um, interference but there were a couple instances in 1932 when the movie cuts away from the action and shows you either like a newsroom or there's i think one scene with a courtroom where they're talking basically directly to the audience and then of course the alternate ending which didn't actually end up getting used where the court sentences him and the judge like admonishes tony directly and then right before his hanging right the other scenes you're talking about is a very early scene when Oh, at the very beginning, right? So Tony kills the original boss of the South Side, making way for Johnny, because at this point he's still, you know, loyal to Johnny. Uh, and we are immediately in a, a newspaper office, and they're deciding to make the headline, Former Mob Boss Killed, Gang War Begun. Seeing that in the 1930s and just thinking about, like, clickbait and things now and the way media influences society i think the movie was certainly trying to say something there about is it irresponsible for newspapers to report things in a in a sensationalist sort of way but then they come back to that later uh where someone basically accuses them of that and they're like i'm sorry you don't want the truth (laughs) you know uh so there's sort of that discussion in the 1930s movie uh, and in that scene that you were talking about, uh, the person making the speech condemning gangster activities, it's unrelated to the plot, more or less, as far as I can tell. None of those yeah, none characters of those, show up again. None of those people were characters. I think that scene was inserted in later, if I'm understanding correctly, uh, that the person making those condemnations was himself Italian-American, and they just figured if we have one scene At least of an Italian most, guy yeah. saying, oh, this is gangsters are terrible, then we won't be portraying all Italians as gangsters. Yeah, I mean, the character was Italian. Who <laughs> knows whether the actor was just doing like an Italian accent or something. But yeah, I, I thought that the 1983 movie responded to that scene directly because there's one scene uh, after Tony becomes the crime boss, uh, he's in his gaudy house in like the gaudiest room in the house where he's got this big bubble bath set up with a TV in front of him. Mm -hmm. And he ends up watching some like conservative political commentator who's going on this street about how all these immigrants are like causing all these problems. Uh, And he says, Oh, there are some people that are going to tell you that 
the government is causing these problems by doing this and that, you know, that drugs should be legalized to take yes, them out of the hands of criminals. Basically. Yeah. Similar arguments that we hear today. And then, right. And he says, I am not one of those people. And then Tony starts <laughs> just like mocking him and changes the channel yeah. to watch some pelicans or something. <laughs> Manny, look at it. Pelican play. Come on, pelican. The beginning, I thought, was very immediately eye-catching because it begins with an explanation of the Mariel boat lift and then it cuts the credits which are I think like red text over a black background it'll cut that with uh, footage of the Cubans like leaving Cuba on getting on these boats you know traveling across to Miami getting off in Miami getting taken into custody by the border patrol or whatever Mm -hmm. um just to give you like a background before you even meet tony or meet anybody oh yeah i'm sure anybody watching the 1980s scarface in theaters being familiar with the original maybe they were hyped like yeah i'm gonna see the remake they go into the theaters and that movie that's what's starting the movie they might be like am i watching a documentary about cubans because i thought i was here for scarface yeah it's just a very different introduction to the whole story because he doesn't start out actually in a gang at all well uh, he was but not in the gang that is central to our story i think the immigration authorities accuse him of being an assassin for gangs uh based on like a tattoo that he has and something else so we kind of think that's his background but we don't really learn much more about that but once he gets to uh to the detention camp in Miami, he essentially gets a job assassinating an ex-communist uh, official from Cuba in order to get a green card. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's not working on behalf of the government, but whoever he's working for like, is pulling some strings or maybe just like manipulating him into doing this. Uh, I think that's how he was getting the in with Frank's group, just like yeah. very, very low so, down in it. So, yeah, the gang that hires them to do that hit eventually hires them to do something else, and that's right, how he begins Right, because he tells to... Frank, I did that for fun. Yeah, yeah, I call a communist for fun. Yeah. yeah. You tell your guys in Miami, your friend, it'd be a pleasure. I kill a communist for fun, but for a green card, I'm going to carve him up real nice. Yeah, I will say when the movie's starting out and they find out, okay, in order to get this, get ourselves comfortable here in Florida, we're going to need to assassinate this person. I was expecting like an intricate assassination. And <laughs> you really just get like stabbing him in broad daylight during a like riot. But uh, I will also say uh, of these opening scenes, Al Pacino is doing such an accent in this movie to the point where it's tough to you know, imitate some of the lines and not feel like, is it offensive that I'm, like, doing this accent? But he does some amazing acting throughout this whole movie. But it's so, like, iconic. It's like, if it's offensive to imitate his accent, then I think, like, everybody everybody that's seen this movie is guilty. Because I don't think you can come away with this and not, not like... Not want to say, wanna... say hello to my little friend. Yeah, you <laughs> would just want to talk like that. And I mean... Part of that is the glorification that, that we are going to get into, but uh, yeah. it's, it's very interesting. Just to keep it on, on the politics, there there's also one scene in 1983 where Tony visits his supplier in Bolivia, and they make a plan to assassinate uh, 
this Bolivian journalist or researcher. I'm not really sure. Yeah, and I think it's important to mention that it's not just a meeting between them. There's like a representative from the U.S. government there as well. Well, Like many people who are being exposed in in the way cocaine trade is happening in the United States at that time, according to this movie. So I think that there are officials from like the Bolivian, Colombian, and Venezuelan governments or something like that. And then the Bolivian drug lord is just like, and this is so-and-so from Washington. And that's Mm -hmm. all he says. And you're left to wonder, like, is this an official representative or, you know, what is going on? But the reason that you might suspect that this is, you know, either a CIA operative or something like that is because uh, the Bolivian activist or journalist was going on TV in America and saying, you know, America is complicit in the drug trade. You know, America is both fighting this drug war, but it's also, you know, fueling the demand. And, you know, America is basically making money on both ends uh, from, from doing this. So it's sort of an indictment, not just of, you know, people like Tony who are selling the drugs and people like Sosa, the Bolivian drug lord, but of, you know, all of us who are sort of participating in this just by by letting it happen. Um, and I guess in particular, the government for waging the drug war without trying to address the the root causes of, of the demand, right? That seems almost more generalized than I thought uh, the journalist's presentation was, that it was like, I mean, he was naming names and I think explaining distinct systems of trade uh, and covert operations that were happening. In 1932, I thought that uh, I thought the movie was like grasping at straws to find some like political angle in order to claim that it was critical, that it's not glorifying these these people, and it seemed like what they grasped onto was that uh, it's the government's fault for allowing guns to cross state lines. Oh well, the federal government needs to prevent like. There's nothing Illinois can do about this if the guns are flowing in from, like, out of state. Like, this is something that the federal government needs to take care of. Right. Like, halfway through the movie, Tommy guns become the whole part of the gang war, much to Tony's excitement. Like, he's literally getting shot at in this drive-by, and he's like, what? I've never seen guns yeah, like this. Like, I must get one. And he like, runs get, out get into one of the them. street to get one. Yeah. Machine guns you can carry. Yeah, so the Irish gang was importing the guns. And were they importing the bullets separately? There's some comment about how easy it is for them to be getting so many guns. Mm-hmm. This is one of the few scenes that you get of like the Irish gang members talking about it. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't tell whether it was like a half hearted, oh, this is how we're saying that we're you know, politically conscious, or whether it was something well, that was actually Well, that's why my initial reaction to your question was, it's not really a political stance for me. It's more just like, this person. And I think it did manage to be very critical of Tony. But I can see how some people did not view it that way, and how some people got quite upset about him glorifying that lifestyle. The last thing I'll say is just that in comparison to the 32 version, in 83... There's no, like, you know, talking to you from the TV screen. But at the very end of the movie, it does have a little title that says, this movie is not meant to reflect on Cubans or Cuban-Americans. Like, they add, you know, they enrich our society or something to that effect. 
And I think that was kind of their equivalent message of, like, just so you know, like, the Cuban-American community is probably not going to like this. We don't mean it like that, you know, whether or not they're actually taking pains to not be offensive. They do have that, so. I honestly, I felt like that was very much too little too late. Too little in the sense that they provide numbers earlier in the movie. You're talking about that opening scene where they're providing, like, information about the boat lift Mm -hmm. and the number that they provide of how many of the the cubans were gang members is on like the high end of estimates i mean maybe estimates have changed over time but Mm -hmm. if you're going to be saying yeah not all cubans are like this but it was this many cubans like you know that's that doesn't quite jive but then also it's too little too late because it's literally at the end of the credits who is watching all the credits to get that psa you know but I think much the same, it's like, you you might call it, like, exploitation. I think that's fair. But I don't think it's, like, intended to be offensive. And I think, let's just slap this label on it and make sure that people know we're not, like, intending it like that. And I think most people wouldn't interpret it Well, it's interesting it that ways. they both did that, because I think there's plenty of gangster movies that, that don't. So, moving on a little bit from that, uh, why don't we talk about a couple of the major characters in each movie. These are the sister of Tony and Tony's love interest. So, in the 1983 movie, those are uh, Gina, his sister, and Elvira, who he eventually uh, marries in the second half of the movie. And in 1932, can you remind us their names? Uh, Cheska is his sister, played by Anne Dvorak, and Poppy is his love interest, played by Karen Morley. Both, I would say, uh, splendid performances. Just very uh, enjoyable to watch, especially Anne Dvorak. We, we initially watched this movie because of one random gif where Anne Dvorak dances for Tony's friend, and that led to us watching that clip multiple times, and we found that clip, like, hilarious. Tony's inside. He see you in that outfit? I look pretty good from two stories up. Am I different now? Want to dance with me? Listen, you're Tony's sister, see? And besides, you're only a kid. I'm 18. You like that music? And eventually, you know, we had seen that enough that we were just like, all right, let's just watch this movie. And yeah, she didn't disappoint. She was great throughout the entire movie. She was just really magnetic. And uh... well, she plays such a fascinating character of Cheska, who displays such a wide range of emotions and is always wearing her emotions on her sleeve. I mean, first time we see her, she's just making out with this guy in the hallway. And her brother comes in and is like, get this guy out of here and you you get the first seeds of like tony's being too possessive of his sister but cheska really just brushes it off she's very like self-possessed and And immediately uh, afterward he's like here take like a thousand dollars or whatever yes Um, i mean it's just so clearly just every aspect of a toxic relationship yeah you know just i'm gonna tell you what to do but i'm giving you excessive money so you're gonna be required to oblige my every whim you know yeah um and my whim is for you to never look at a man yeah (laughs) you know and uh in both movies the sister is living with their mother 
mm-hmm. who is very not just distrustful but like openly dislikes Tony and wants his sister to just stay away from him and not be involved with him. And interestingly, both um, uh, an immigrant to the United States yeah. and therefore not participating in American society as like a fully assimilated citizen. So you would want the like protection of family and everything. And Tony's just destroying that. Yeah. I think in, in both situations, the kids are like in their own ways, integrating themselves into society more so than, than mm-hmm. their mom. who's just, you could say like stuck in her ways, but also I think distrusts a lot of the society that she's moved it into And a lot of that is, like, a lot of the things that she would distrust are, like, manifested in Tony. So it's, like, she has plenty of reason to be distrustful. Uh, How would you compare Cheska to the sister in the 1980s version? Gina, played by Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. I didn't think she was great as Gina. I mean... She was a snooze fest, David. Acting aside, I think it's hard. Going from Anne Dvorak to... To, to that performance, I think was... Just, it just wasn't as good. There mm-hmm. were performances in the 80s version that I thought were significantly better, and we'll talk about those. But uh, this this was, I think, a, a miss for me. Yeah. And such an important character. Mm-hmm. As much as it's an abusive relationship that Tony has with his sister, I mean, he literally will physically assault her in both movies i think he hits her yeah and interrupts her interactions with men in like violent and aggressive ways yeah despite that in the 30s version cheska tells him at the end of the movie when she comes to kill him uh that she can't do it because she is him why didn't you shoot why didn't you shoot because you're me. And I'm you. No, I've been that way. And that makes a kind of sense with the movie because she is also just such a, a powerful person who just wants what she wants. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But just hasn't had the same power that Tony's had, mostly because Tony's had this power over her. But yeah. she just goes out and gets what she wants, and it's... It's cool. And I think in the in the exact way that their mom is like, you can't trust just, you know, ambition and greed. Like, those are things that, that you can't trust. But they both want things, and, you know, it's it ends up being their downfall because the sisters die in both of these movies and mm-hmm. in much the same way. So the mom in the 80s version tried to say the same thing. She's like, Gina's just like you. You've turned her into you. Yeah. But that's the mom's perspective, and there's no reason to really be like, oh, yeah, she's right. That's what Gina is. Because Gina just never comes off that way. And I think some of it is, despite the movie being so long, Gina doesn't do a lot in that movie. I think it's because she's not a good actor that we just don't get a lot from her. A lot of her performance I think would be more meaningful if she was better in the movie and I don't even want to say she's bad because I've never seen her in anything no, else let's, so let's actually talk about her opportunities to be good and interesting so that first scene with Cheska in the 1930s you know Tony makes the guy run off gives her money she goes up to her room and she looks out the window and who's out the window but Guino Ronaldo Tony's best friend and they're doing this like flirtation from her bedroom window to him down on the street Tony's not even a part of this scene or part of this story. It's a clear establishment of a mutual 
attraction without even talking to each other yeah and it's it's very well done and then alluded to when they finally do get a chance to talk to each other but gina her first time meeting manny and i can't even say meeting manny because she doesn't meet him in this scene is she's outside of her mother's house and tony's talking to her and honestly they're not even arguing and then tony says goodbye and she goes back inside and we realize that Manny's been staring at Gina from the car and just enraptured by her beauty. Tony gets in the car and as soon as Manny mentions it, Tony, you know, goes off like, ah, it's my sister, you know? There was no actual establishment of a relationship between Manny and Gina, just that Manny's attracted. Well, there are other scenes later that do that. Like what? There, so after Tony catches her with someone in the club, Manny takes her home. I think it's the first conversation between them that we see. He's telling her, you know, Tony's right. Like, you can't be going with that guy. That guy's a scumbag. Like, you gotta go with a regular guy, like a banker. And she's like, what about, like, you? Would you ever take me out? And he's like, get out of here. Yeah. You know, but they have this, like, little flirty thing going. And just to be clear, so in in both of these movies, they end up together. They do. Tony. That's pivotal to the, the, the climax of the movie. Yeah, the climax of each movie, Tony finds them together and just goes into like this blind rage and kills uh, his friend. He shoots him and the sister immediately calls out like, we were just married. We wanted to surprise you because Tony's been out of town for a little bit. The sister and, and the friend have finally had a chance to actually have their relationship without Tony there and they figured... The one way he would be okay with them being together is for them to be married, but he just reacts so immediately that that he kills his best friend and then realizes what he'd done, and you you can tell that Tony would have probably been okay with it uh, if, he, uh, if he'd known they were married. That's arguable. You don't think so? Yeah, I would say that's arguable, especially in 1983. Um, but just to, just to finish up with what happens... Uh, Tony immediately realizes what he's done and just, like, kind of dissociates for a little bit. Uh, So in 1932, after Tony realizes what he's done, he goes to his house and just kind of holes up in his room with the steel shutters. So Cheska comes to see him and brings a gun, and I guess her intention is to kill him, but she just can't do it. And that's when she says, I'm you and you're me, etc. And then they hug it out. They're surrounded by cops. They both get way too excited at this shootout. It's like, nobody should react this way to being shot at. She gets shot, and then he tries to surrender, and then reneges on that and gets shot at the end of the shootout. Uh, What's he say? My steel shutters didn't work. (laughs) Yeah, he was very unhappy about that. Uh, And then in 1983, after he kills Manolo... He goes back to his house, does a fuck ton of cocaine. So much cocaine. And he's just sitting at his desk like, Manolo, Manolo. And every time he's thinking about it, he does more cocaine to, like, I guess try to make himself forget. And then Gina shows up, and she's wearing, like, a robe and underwear. Well, it's the same clothes she was wearing when Right, she hasn't Manolo. changed, yeah. I'm all yours now. Gina. <laughs> you better... And she has a gun, and she's just like, is this what you want? Is this what you want? And like, you know, accusing him of being jealous of Manolo. 
And then the same thing happens. She has a gun and starts shooting at him and misses. But then the Bolivian drug lords come to town and in their efforts to assassinate Tony, they assassinate Gina first. I don't think we needed Gina to be like, oh, this is what you want. You want to have sex with me. I guess that wasn't my reading of the 30s movie. Yes, he wants to control her sexuality. But wasn't that part of the book was... Like there was this incestuous thing between Tony and his sister. Well, let's move on and talk about uh, Elvira and Poppy. Yeah, so Poppy is Johnny Lovo's girlfriend in the 1932 movie. And Elvira is Frank's girlfriend in the movie from the 1980s. And in both of these, uh, Tony immediately realizes that he wants the boss's gal. And actually, there's a lot of uh, lines that are the same in both movies in his pursuit of her, which I thought was interesting. Uh, Again, I was... And this is going to be sacrilege for me, because you know, and I've said on this podcast numerous times, that I love Michelle Pfeiffer. But Karen Morley's performance as Poppy was great. Her complete indifference to Tony in the first scene when Tony and Johnny are having a meeting in the apartment and she's basically like, can you guys go anywhere else? Like, it's just such perfect irritation. You've got an office with this sort of thing, Johnny. Why don't you use it? And just her slowly falling falling for Tony, which happens in both movies. Yeah, her, like, disinterest in Tony in both movies, you really, like, feel and... I think especially in the 80s movie, I don't think she really falls for Tony. Like, there's no scene we get where we're like, wow, they're really in love, you know? It's just so, like, not romantic, you know? And I I think that was intentional. I don't think that it was supposed to be romantic. I think Michelle Pfeiffer, you know, she lost weight for the role to portray, like, a drug addict because she's insanely skinny in the movie, but uh, she's supposed to be coked up the whole time and like never really eats and they talk about that and she just you see her doing cocaine like constantly and they talk about it and they talk about like how bad it is for her body i can't even have a kill with her money her womb is so polluted i can't even have a fucking little baby with her how dare you talk to me like that What do you do? You do drugs and you kill people? Oh, that's wonderful, Tony. Real contribution to human history. Go ahead. So tell everybody. Come on. You want a kid? Tell the world. What kind of a father do you think you are? You know, part of her, like, physical, you know, disaffection toward everything is, uh, I think, related to that. And you're supposed to... I don't think you're supposed to really feel... Like there's any affection between them. What about when we get put one on her scene? Hat? Is that the scene you're talking about? Yeah, we get one <laughs> scene where Tony puts on her hat and is like being silly with that, and she can't help but laugh, and that's it. Yeah. Everything else is just like she was married to Frank, and then he wakes her up in the middle of the night, and he's like, "Hey, Frank's dead. Like, come with me. Like, pack your things and come with me." You know. What about when he met her by the pool, and he was like, "You like children." You want to have children with me? See, I guess that's what I didn't understand, is I thought there was supposed to be an attraction. 
Like, I thought Michelle Pfeiffer's character, that Elvira was meant to be attracted to power, and the more power Tony got, the more she wanted him. But if I'm being honest, that's because that's how I read Poppy in the 1930s version. And also, that's that's what, like, that's what he says to Manolo. He's like, in this country, here's what you do. First you get get the the money, money, then you get get the power, power, then you get get the the women. women. It's not so much that she's, like, romantically attracted to his power, but just, like, latches on because she's an addict. I mean, she's mm-hmm. literally addicted to cocaine, but I think she's also addicted to this lifestyle and to the idea of being with the the most powerful person. Yeah, right? I see that. Would you agree, though, that it's done differently in the 30s version and that Poppy was attracted to the the physical power and the gangster power that Tony possessed? Yeah, I think Poppy was more attracted to Tony than... Than Elvira was. Yeah. Another key difference here is that because Tony has killed the mob boss, he is now the person in charge. He gets the power and he gets the woman. In the 30s version, that's literally like the end of the movie. He goes to Florida for a while to like lay low after killing Johnny, and when he returns, that's when he discovers his sister with his friend. He kills his friend, and there's the final shootout. So you literally never see Poppy after Tony has become the crime lord. Whereas in the 80s version, he kills Frank. As you said, you get the scene of him waking Elvira up to be like, Frank's dead, you know? Mm -hmm. But then you still get more of his lifestyle as a crime lord. Multiple scenes with Elvira in the bathroom, in the restaurant, just clearly their relationship is not not a loving one, uh, as you say. She's just constantly coked out, and it's part of his whole downfall once he got on top of the world. Everything, you know, starts falling apart. Yeah, and I think that Tony is the kind of person who he wants everything. Once he gets that, he's just not very interested in it. And I think she maybe felt that with Frank. You know, maybe Frank was the same way. Once they were together, he just didn't care. And she definitely feels that with Tony, that he only wanted her because he wanted her, right? There's no, there's nothing deeper than that. Yeah. And I think she, she realized that and was just like, oh, well, if this is just my empty life, then I'm just going to live it in this empty way. Well, I think that brings us to talking about the man himself, Tony, Tony Comanti, Tony Montana. The same man, different men. What do you say, David? Uh, that's a good question. I didn't know you were going to get that deep just to, <laughs> just to start. Uh, I think the idea of like Tony just taking them together is that he is someone who he wants things deeply, right? Like ambition, I think, is his defining trait. And not necessarily because he believes in something or because he wants something specific. He literally wants the world, and in I think people probably know the '83 movie best. The the seeing the blimp right after he takes control of the crime organization after killing Frank, and he goes to get Elvira, and while she's getting ready, he goes outside and he stares up at the sky and he sees the blimp crossing the sky, saying, "The world is yours," and that's taken directly from the 1932 movie where he is showing people across the street from his apartment, there's like a billboard that says the world is yours. And 
like what Tony Montana sees, what Tony Camonti sees is it's an advertisement, but mm-hmm. he sees what he wants to see. And like, so he's getting this message, like this very capitalist message through like a capitalist mechanism, advertising, saying hmm. anything that you want, you can take. That it's, it already belongs to you. It's not anybody else's. It's yours. And so like he thinks he can get things that he wants just by wanting them enough. You know, without getting too deep into it, I think part of the reason that so many people are like attracted to Tony, even though he's a scumbag, is because of that. Because like there's something admirable about that, about wanting something enough that about going you it. can make it happen, mm-hmm. right? You know, people of our generation know the 83 version best and Al Pacino's Tony Montana is like iconic and I think that's what people latch on to. Right. And I think Tony Camonti the same way. Like, I don't know how he would have come across to 1930s audiences, but obviously they were worried about the way that they were depicting him would be too likable. Right. And he, he is like, uh, Paul Muni is great in the, in this movie. Yeah. Like he's really like, uh, you know, attractive and charming and fun. And even though like, I think I described him as manic at one point because, you know, he'll be you know, doing one thing and he'll be, you know, really focused on it and unhappy or something like that. And then he'll get in a gunfight and see a Tommy gun and he'll just go wild. Or like yeah. in the final scene with the shootout with the police, he's just running around in this hail of gunfire talking about how great his steel shuttle shutters are without even like really not focusing. closing the steel shutters. He doesn't care. He doesn't care about that. Yeah. Like he doesn't care about what they can actually do for him. He's like, this is something that I wanted and now I have it. Look at this. I have it. Mm-hmm. And I have it for this situation without making the connection that like, yeah, you have it for this situation. So you should go shut them. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But like, there's something so like charming about that. And I think that both of these characters are just like a balance between like, this is a really smart person and like, this is a really dumb person, you know? And you don't necessarily know like in any given moment, which part of him is going to take control. Is it like this person who is willing to do anything to get what he wants and he's going to be smart about it? Mm -hmm. Or is it the person who's just so thrilled about having something for like a brief fleeting moment, the moment that he gets it, that nothing else matters, you know? And he just doesn't care either about his life or about his friends or about his family or anything like that. In the 1983 version, right after he becomes the crime boss, he's sitting in his office and Manny comes into his office. Tony is like, this car has been parked outside for three days. Like, aren't you supposed to be the head of security? What's going on? And Manny's like, what, have you been watching the security monitor for three days? And he's like, look, I installed the security monitor. It's here. This is why I'm using it. And then at the end of the movie, after he kills Manolo, he's sitting at his desk and on the security monitors behind him, you see the entire like Bolivian cartel coming to kill him. And he's just not even looking at it. You know, he's just totally forgotten about it because what's important to him at that moment is more cocaine. Yeah. Like that's not what's important to him. He's just he's just seeking these greater and greater highs because that's what the pursuit of more leads to. Mm-hmm. And I think the cocaine, it's its almost like a perfect depiction of who Tony is. That those highs that you keep chasing it and trying to get more and more and more, that's what his flaw is, right? 
like trying to get more is never going to actually satisfy you for more than a brief moment. Oh, wow. I thought, I mean, that's a great analysis of Tony himself, both Tonys, right? That is who Tony is. I mean, the only thing I have to add is not going to sound as deep or interesting as that, but I also really like in both movies his incorrigible nature when it comes to uh, (laughs) negotiating, (laughs) which is like an important skill and something that helps him get the success he, Mm -hmm. he ends up with. But like the first thing Johnny Lovo asked him to do in the 1930s is you know, establish the connections with all of the speakeasies that they're going to be distributing their alcohol to. And he goes up and he goes, hey, how many barrels are you getting? The guy's like, five. And he goes, oh, you're getting eight now and you're going to pay more. It's better. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like... What are you buying your beer for? Man and Virginia. How many barrels a day? Three. He's lying, Tony. He's been taking five. Shit, listen. Well, you're getting eight now, see? And you're buying from us, Johnny Lowe. But listen, I, I can't use eight barrels around well, I get your hunk of soap, you take a bath in it. What are you paying about? Fifty. Lars is sixty-five. It's better. Get delivery tomorrow. What am I going to tell me and Virginia? We'll take care of them, don't worry. Well, that's order number one. And the same thing happens in the 80s movie when he goes down to Bolivia. He goes with another one of Frank's men, immediately starts negotiating. So why don't we split the risk? You guarantee your delivery... Say, as far as Panama, we take it from there. Panama is risky. Cost me more. Panama I can sell for 13.5 a key. 13.5? What are you, lost? 13.5? We still got to take that shit to Florida, man. Do you know what that's like these days? You got the fucking Navy all over the place. You got frogmen. Forget about 13.5. And the guy who's down there with it's like, yo, dude, slow your roll. Yeah. But that's just illustrating how much Tony is is going for it and going to negotiate for what he wants. Yeah. And people's reactions to his negotiations are like, how could they say no? Yeah, and uh, that character is also Omar Suarez, played by F. Murray Abraham. And he is actually Tony and Manolo's introduction to the gang in the first place because once they get out yeah. of the detention camp, they are like working as cooks or something and manny's like we have you know i'm i met up with the guy like let's go talk to him he might have another job for us and it's clear that manolo is like the connection here but tony's just like this is bullshit you're gonna pay us five hundred dollars we need a thousand and like just talk shit and like basically threatens omar Mm -hmm. until he's like all right i've got like a real job for you and if you do it you'll get five thousand right And it's just Tony not really caring how he comes across, you know, and like at times not really caring whether he lives or dies, which is very much like in 1932 when, like you said, when he's negotiating uh, with with these uh, speakeasies, he's just like, I don't really care that this is making me enemies everywhere. That's Mm -hmm. like not what's important to me right now. Yeah. And all that matters to me right now is what matters to me right now. Yeah. And that's what, what Johnny didn't realize about him is that he wouldn't take no for an answer when Johnny says we're done, we're not expanding more, you know. When it comes to Tony's like morality, like you're saying a lot of people admire Tony, you know, I would say mistakenly, right? For these qualities. But the 80s movie does introduce a goodness to Tony at his core 
that we don't have mm-hmm. in Tony Camonte in the 1930s. And that is when they are sent to assassinate that journalist, the one we mentioned earlier, who is trying to expose the shadiness of the cocaine trade. That journalist is about to give a speech at the UN, and Tony is tasked with assassinating him with a car bomb. But what Tony didn't realize is that this journalist's wife and child would be in the car as well. And when faced with this decision, rather than allowing the car bomb to go off, Tony shoots the man holding the, uh, you know, the button for the bomb. Mm-hmm. Thus introducing in us, the viewer, some core doubt about his evil awfulness. Because how could a bad guy save women and children? I don't really know why they included that, and I honestly, I've sort of been grappling with it myself. So I don't know, David, if you have any thoughts about what that adds to Tony's character. Well, I think that, like, introduces a little bit of doubt about what his real downfall is caused by, because the the guy that he kills is working for his Bolivian supplier. So he, he goes back to Miami, and he tries to get on the phone with, uh, with his supplier, Sosa, and Sosa's like, you just killed my guy. And Tony's like, yeah, he was, you know, trying to kill, like, a woman and kids. Like, and I told you I don't do that. Like, I don't, I told you I don't do that. And Sosa's like, well, I told you, like, don't fuck me, you know? They hang up on each other in a huff. But, uh, like, that night, he sends assassins to go kill Tony. Yeah, that's a so big shootout. It, I think, to me, it makes me wonder, like, is it possible to like stop people who don't have a conscience you know who like don't have any shame you know because if tony like up until that point if there was nothing stopping him from like achieving that next level from getting that next high or whatever Mm. he somehow hit a point where he was like this is something that i'm not willing to do and that's what caused him to die Mm -hmm. right that's what caused his entire downfall what are we supposed to take from that I think in the last few years, like, certainly we've seen the power of, like, shamelessness, right? Mm -hmm. That you can get really far in life if you just never apologize, like, take what you want, and you just act without any attempt at virtue or even trying to display virtue, even if it's phony, right? You can get really far doing that. And I think maybe that was part of of the intention there. I have trouble with the whole glorification of these sorts of characters but for some reason tony i i do find myself being interested in in their story and their rise and fall the other thing i would want to talk about with his presence in the movie is obviously we get a longer downfall in the 80s movie and we get a lot of his isolation at the top you know it's lonely at the top i think would be part of the uh the messaging there. He, there's the big scene where they're in the bathroom. He's with his wife, Michelle Pfeiffer, and with his best friend, Manny, and just sort of like pushing them away with his behavior and attitude. And they both walk out yeah. calling him an asshole. She walks out and she calls him an asshole. And then Manolo stays with him for a second. And he's like, man, she was right. You are an asshole. And then he leaves too, you know? And then you get the shot of Tony Montana, king of the world, a lonely man in a huge bathroom. Sitting in his bubble bath, (laughs) smoking a cigar, watching the TV. Talking to himself. Exactly. And you don't get that sort of introspection in the 1930s movie, if you can call it introspection. I mean, that's the only word coming to mind for me. 
But what I liked in the 1930s movie is that the scenes themselves communicated aspects of Tony's position of power. Like when they're in the movie theater and Tony is there with his friend Guino and with his uh, assistant Angelo and he's talking, he's like really into the plot of this movie they're watching. But then he gets the call, he's got to go. He stands up and walks out and like half of the movie theater stands up and walks out with him. And you just get this sense of him constantly being surrounded by guys. Mm -hmm. So you don't get any sort of like, oh yeah, but it's lonely sort of like ideas. And that's before he even becomes the kingpin. Mm -hmm. Because that's the night that Johnny sends the guys after him. And he's only separated because Because they go to the club and he got mad at Cheska. Yeah, and he took Cheska home. Yeah, so he sort of, you know, made himself vulnerable in that way. Uh, But that's the only thing that him being alone is in that movie is vulnerability and not something that normally happens well i do think this isn't so much a difference as like a difference in the the movie more than a difference in their character but we do get a lot more of him interacting with manolo in in the 1983 version you do and the changing dynamics of their relationship right and i think their their relationship more so than his relationship with michelle pfeiffer reflects what's actually changing, uh, like how he's changing now that he's achieved what he wanted. You know, Manolo, played by Stephen Bauer, and, and he's also, I think, the only actual Cuban actor in in the movie. Yeah, unfortunately. He's amazing in this movie, I think. Oh, yeah. He's and so funny. I think Guino is not as much of a character. Guino's more an idea than a character. Yeah. But I still believe in the spark between him and Cheska, but that is that has a lot to do with Cheska. Yeah. But like we know, like I think his main thing is like he's constantly flipping a coin, and that's like Which this is like cool. it's like this yeah <laughs> cool suave move. But you know, in the nineteen eighty three version, you get all these scenes before they're really uh, before they're really powerful. You get all these scenes of just Tony and Manolo like hanging out. You know, yeah. like Manolo's always trying to pick up girls and stuff, and they talk about like you know how to pick up women and. Um, but yeah, I just I would be remiss if I didn't say how great he was and how much more fleshed out his character was. And, you know, as a result of that, I think their relationship and Tony's character is much deeper in that way. And it, it brings a whole different uh, gravity to him killing Manny. Yeah, because I see Guino as more of like a goon than a friend. And Manolo is clearly a friend first and then... Later on, Tony's treating him like even in the bathtub scene, he's like, hey, man, like, let me do this thing. You know, we're supposed to be partners. And Tony's like, you're a junior partner. And that's when he's Mm -hmm. like, man, fuck you. You are an asshole. Yeah. Because he starts treating him less like a friend and, and more like just another means to an end. The one aspect of Guino. Yeah, he's like a lackey. He's just like the right hand man guy. He's got this loyalty that is unquestionable because you get the scene of him and Cheska without Tony and Cheska coming on to him and he's like you're Tony's sister like I'm not gonna talk to you we can't do this and so as an audience member we see that he is that loyal to Tony so when Tony kills him it just feels very unjust but that is different from in the 80s where it's like it's like betrayal yeah exactly so just going back to the subject of excess 
glorification, power. Those are the themes of the movie. And I guess my hot takey question is, do you think that the 1983 version is a victim of its own excess? Yes. I mean, if you're talking runtime, certain scenes. Then my hot takey follow-up is, did censorship save the 1932 movie? Hmm. The movie that they had wanted to make, they couldn't do. They couldn't do something that glorified violence and glorified crime in the way that they wanted to. And I think even if they wanted to do it as like uh, to make you uncomfortable or to like make you like Tony and then question whether there's anything redeemable there, even if that was their intention, I think they did want to make something that was more graphic than what they ended up making, right? Or do you think they made the movie that they wanted to make? I'm just wondering, like, it seems uncomfortable position for us to say they were right to do that. You know, they were right to step in and say it needs to be less violent. Don't make the relationship between the brother and sister as overtly sexual. Like, don't do this. Don't do that. You know, normally I think we sort of frown upon that. And I wonder, for people that did like the 1932 movie, is that what saved it? Or I would say if you don't like the 83 movie for those types of reasons. Sure. And I get what you're saying. I think that censorship is not to blame necessarily because, I mean, we know that it's pre-code, again, whatever that really means. We also know that Hawks, the director, ignored a lot of the ideas of censorship that were being suggested or requested of him, right? He made the alternate ending, but then he didn't use it. He knew states weren't going to play his movie. And he didn't care. I mean, he does insert the text and the scene of the the Italian-American being like, ooh, gangsters are bad. But overall, it doesn't feel like a movie that was muzzled, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think the reduction in graphic violence is only because it's a movie from the 1930s. So what, so what you're saying is it's not the censorship, it's the sensibilities of the time. For both movies, yeah. That like... If the 1983 version was made now, it would be more graphic. But likewise, if the 1932 version had been made 50 years later by Howard Hawks, he would have been like, we can get away with doing way worse than what we could have done 50 years well, ago. Well, I think it's not that he would have wanted to get away with it, but that the bar would have been raised mm-hmm. and he would be trying to meet that bar. So do you think that like the public in 1932 saw... Like the 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 massacre scene, mm-hmm. the same way that audiences in 1983 would have seen the chainsaw scene. You're referencing the scene of the St. Valentine's Day massacre when Tony's um, gangsters gun down seven Irish yeah. mobsters at the same time. Yeah, they round them up and put them against the wall, and I think you don't see you don't see what happens, but you see their shadows, yeah, the and then you hear the the gunfire as they all go down. In reference to uh, something actually carried out by Al Capone. Yeah, I think it would be more graphic if it were made now, which I think is a shame. You know, I I don't understand why movies move towards that bar, like why the needle has moved and we just can't have a fascinating character and an interesting movie without all of that extra just goriness and graphicness. Well, I guess what I'm getting at is, like, if the movie is meant to disgust you and the 1932 version, like, doesn't, 
then that should make you wonder whether it succeeded or failed. That Hawks wanted to disgust me, but I'm not living in the 1930s where this would have been the most graphic thing I'd ever seen. Mm-hmm. But that is what he was interested in doing, is showing the most graphic thing ever. I mean, if, if you're positing that that is your opinion, I think that is probably how they viewed well, those scenes. I guess if I'm a director, I'm not thinking about it as like, there's a there's an audience of one person that I'm trying to either make them love Tony or despise him. I think if I'm that director, whether it's Howard Hawks or Brian De Palma or Quentin Tarantino or whoever, you're not saying, I want everybody to feel one way about this movie. You're saying, I want a lot of people to feel conflicted about this movie. I want some people to feel really positively and some people to feel really negatively. The interesting thing about this movie is how people can reconcile those two things. Like, how can you reconcile the cognitive dissonance of really liking a character like Tony, whether it's Paul Muni or Al Pacino, and at the same time thinking, like, everything in this movie was over the top. You know, whether it's the chainsaw scene or Paul Muni, you know, gunning people down. And I should say that in the chainsaw scene, it's like Tony who's tortured with the chainsaw or rather his friend and tony's being threatened with it so it's it's not him doing that bit of violence but we do see him doing similarly horrible things and i just wonder if the movie is meant to bring that cognitive dissonance to you which movie really succeeded and which failed and it could be that they both failed in different directions right like if too many people idolize tony montana and there's nothing about Tony Camanti or 1932 Scarface that really is that upsetting, then they both fail. And I honestly, I did not expect the 1932 movie to be very good because to me it seemed like this is going to be a complete propaganda movie and it wasn't that at all. So I do think that, at least for me, that movie succeeded in in what it was trying to do. But I wonder, you know, we're not the only audience. I mean, how would we measure success in that cognitive dissonance? Would it be in how much you can't help but love Tony? Because if that's the barometer here, then I would say Tony Camonte, you know? (laughs) Well, I don't know. Early movie Tony Montana. There's a lot more changes with Tony Montana over the course of the movie. Tony Camonte is the same person all movie long. Mm-hmm. So that's that's just another aspect to this whole conversation as well. Well, I'm just trying to be controversial. Yeah, I see that. And in the end, we're the ones making the decisions. So it's, you know, we're not trying to decide whether a movie works for everybody. It's just about whether it works for us. Um, before we get into which movie we liked better, I did just want to say both of these movies are very funny. And, you know, we've been talking a lot yes. about the violence, but... Like, even the 1932 version, you don't expect humor from 100 years ago to really hit. Oh, can I tell you but my it's favorite so... scene in yeah, the 1930s movie? So, I referenced this scene earlier just to talk about the many guys that were around Tony when he was in the movie theater. He was so invested in this, like, love triangle that was going on in this movie they were watching. And when he leaves to go take care of business, he's talking with his guys outside the theater, but he's part of his brain is stuck on the movie like he wants to know how it ends so he says to his friend i can't remember if it was guino or angelo i think it was angelo he's like go back in and watch the movie and tell me what happens he's like we're all gonna do this not you you go back inside and we'll talk about the movie yeah it's 
funny. And that character was really funny, too. Um, he was, I guess, kind of an idiot that Tony took on as his secretary. Oh, he was a complete, just, like, uh, comedic character. That, yeah. Yeah. But he, he, like, couldn't read. And he didn't know how to use a telephone. He didn't know how to use a phone. So Tony, of course, hired him as his secretary. And uh, he's just, like, taking messages for the whole movie, but, like, doesn't know how to take a message, doesn't know anybody's names, can't write down their names, can't write down the message. <laughs> yeah. I think even in one of the shootout scenes, he's oh, in the right. back on the telephone <laughs> trying to, like, talk to somebody and take a message while the place is getting shot up. I can't... Hello, Hello please. I can't hear what you say. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think, like, uh, Cheska was really funny um and so like her good. flirtations are so bad and so silly yeah but she's an 18 year old girl and I'm it's 18. like <laughs> and As she there's says. like yeah there's like a charm to what she's doing but it's it's still meant to be silly too and mm-hmm. i think that's part of why we know you know likes her and that's why tony's so protective of her is because there's something likable and charming about her um and also something that you want to like protect but yeah, I mean, even the 1983 movie, I think, you know, like we talked about Tony and Manolo's so friendship. So much comes from Tony and Manolo. Their conversation on the bus, like, what's he saying? Oh, yeah, because... I told you to say you were in the sanatorium. He, he's, yeah, because they, uh, because all these criminals and um, invalids and, I guess, asylum patients and just regular people are all sort of mixed together. So the U.S. government's trying to figure out, like well, why are you here? You know, mm-hmm. are you one of these people or are you one of these people? And so their plan, I, I did what you said. I told them I was in sanitation. How long you told me to tell I told him, told him you I was in sanitation. And Tony's like, sanitation? I said to tell him you were in a sanitarium. And Manolo's just like, no, 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 no. You said sanitation. <laughs> I said sanitarium. No, no, no. Why'd you say anything, you know? Yeah. And they're just arguing. But like throughout the, the first half of the movie, especially when they're like not really doing anything and they're talking about like picking up women they just have these like really funny conversations and there's one point when manolo is like no in america here's how you get women you stick your tongue out and you do this ridiculous thing oh look at that fucking thing that look like a lizard like a bug coming out of your mouth and tony's like all right go pick up this girl go do that right now and tony just like goes and sits next to some kid and he's like hey kid Watch my friend get smacked after sticking his tongue out at this girl. And then it happens, and he's like, you see that? You see that? Yeah. But they just have, like, this good banter. And I don't know. There's there's just a lot of humor in in both of these movies. And I think that... I think the intention there is to make Tony more likable. You know, whether it's through Manolo or through Cheska um, and their interactions. But just Tony's way of looking at the world is, like so optimistic you can't help but like laugh with him when he finds these things funny Mm. or like when he's always trying to buy this tiger it's like half of half of the time it's a joke you know he's like i'm gonna get this car i'm gonna put a tiger in my front seat you're gonna be the tiger and then like 10 minutes later he has an actual tiger and it's like you know you can't help but like laugh at that you know and he's laughing at that too but i think that's that's part of the charm of the movie Mm. why don't we uh get into the end here and just say which one we like better in many ways the work of a critic is easy we risk very little yet enjoy a position over those who offer up their work and their selves to our judgment i much preferred the 1932 movie 
Anything think, in particular that you haven't mentioned before, or do you just want to rehash? Well, I'll say reflecting on uh, part of our recent conversation here, it was a bit glorifying of that lifestyle. But watching a movie that's nine, 90 years old, it becomes a little quaint to see. Especially when we're talking about cinema, not like actual news headlines, because it's how it was being portrayed on screen. So I think to your question, I, I probably would feel differently about it if it was made now. If, uh, if Howard Hawks was making it now with his vision and wanting to portray it a certain type of way. But the movie being what it is, I, I loved it. I really enjoyed every single character, even Guino with just the silly coin flipping. I know that doesn't make a character, but I liked his character, what can I say, you know? Mm-hmm. All of it was great. Even his, like, the subtleties of his relationships with Johnny. Like, Johnny had full faith in him and watching the deterioration of that relationship. There's so much to enjoy in the movie beyond even what we've mentioned here. So, I loved it. All right. I'm going to do something unprecedented and say that I like them. I don't want to say equally. but You can't say that. But I don't know. I mean, like, if we're talking about which one I want to watch right now, I want to see, I think, the 1932 version again. But I've also seen the 1983 version, like, a bunch of times. And it's not my favorite movie or anything, but I've probably seen it, you know, four times over the course of my life by now. And we just watched both of them. And the 1932 version, I I do want to revisit, you know? And I could see myself revisiting both of them in equal measure throughout the years. So, like, right now, I would give the edge to 32 just because I'm less familiar with it. But I think the merits of both are are pretty deserving of recognition. Wow. You don't like that? This is where I gotta play the prestige. You don't know? Yeah, you should do that. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I, I just don't know. You don't know? You don't know? I will also say that we gave a lot of credit to Howard Hawks for the, you know, the cinematography and just like the look of the movie and the feel of the movie. And I do want to say that Brian De Palma did an excellent job as well. And I think the movie is gaudier and in a way more beautiful and in a way like uglier. And it's just more. It's just more. But that's doing a good job. And in particular, we were we were both admiring the shot of, um, you know, when Tony's looking at the blimp, we, we turn around and the camera shows us, you know, what Tony actually looks like. And we pull back and we see the entire house and we see, like, the sun is sort of rising and creating, like, this, this early morning light. And then we keep pulling back and we see Michelle Pfeiffer actually getting her clothes together to go, to go with Tony. And, you know, just as we pull back, we see, like, the full picture of what's just happened. And there are, like, a lot of moments like that. There are a lot of, like, you know, really interesting shots where, you know, I think the camera is really reflecting what we're meant to take from from the movie in in a similar way that I think the X's really draw you in and, and make you take account of everything. Like, there are the scenes in the club when Tony is sitting... And he's just surrounded by mirrors and everybody that he's talking to either like we're seeing multiple Tonys or we're seeing uh, multiple um, 
multiple heads of whoever the person is that he's talking to and just like creating these different power dynamics with what we're actually seeing in the movie there's a lot that's really interesting and that's really cool about the way that the movie looks aside from just showing you outrageous suits outrageous cars like Mm -hmm. michelle pfeiffer and you know stuff like that no agreed agreed I'll also say, uh, audience, if you want to go on a trip, you should watch Brian De Palma's movie, Phantom of the Paradise. That's only a semi-serious recommendation because that movie is ridiculous. I only bring it up, though, because that scene where, like, indicating the shift in, in the movie that Tony Montana is now Kingpin and you're talking about Michelle Pfeiffer's getting her clothes together and it's the big faraway shot of the mansion... I had a very Phantom of the Paradise-y vibe to me. I think mostly in the sound. Um, I don't really know how to describe it. It's kind of like an atmospheric, tense sound. And Phantom of the Paradise is unfortunately the main movie I associate. I shouldn't say unfortunately. I'm, I'm giving it, you know, not giving it its full due. But, uh, but that's why I associate it with Brian De Palma. And I think that sound was used in that movie as well. And I think it was brought back... I could be wrong about this. In the final shot of Scarface as well. After Tony says hello to my little friend and gets shot and he falls over the balcony into the pool of water, I think you get that same sort of tense Yeah, we have like almost like a mirror image shot where the camera Mm -hmm. pulls back from Tony's body and he's installed a globe in his house that says the world is yours. So we yeah, see that again. Pink. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we see that again as we like pull back and it's yeah. sort of just like the reflection of everything that we thought up until that point halfway through the movie is just like it comes back and you know it's it's sort of like asking us the it question is. It's, of It's very artistic. But also I loved Howard Hawks like there were I don't think there wasn't much subtle about it like you're supposed to pick up on these things but I loved the shot of uh, in the bowling alley I didn't realize till you pointed out but someone marks a strike on their bowling card mm-hmm. and that's the X that means someone's about to die and then you see someone throw the ball see, down uh, the alley Boris uh, Karloff, Boris Karloff mm-hmm. yeah. he throws the ball down the alley and he gets killed while the ball is rolling and then it hits the pins and one of the pins just like circles itself for a few seconds before falling down and everything about that was like so ridiculous but like so cool you know so i don't know i I just yeah and talking about just like artistic choices in terms of paralleling scenes in these movies also in the 1930s we mentioned that the beginning of the movie is Tony helping Johnny Lovo to establish control of, of the gangsters on the South Side. And the way they do that, apparently all the gangsters hang out in the same spot, uh, like this social club. And after Tony has killed Costello, the original gang boss, uh, who's not a character, literally the first scene is him being killed, Johnny and Tony arrive at the social club and Tony breaks the glass that has Costello's name on it and they go in and he goes you know nothing to be alarmed about guys um but then when Tony and Johnny's relationship has deteriorated and Johnny feels so much that he can't trust Tony and Tony's going after Poppy blatantly and disrespectfully 
and he just decides to send that hit squad after Tony. Tony confronts Johnny in his office, and before the confrontation gets to the point where he's like literally gonna kill Johnny, like there's just that tension of like, what's Tony's move here? Tony walks to the door that now says Johnny Lovo and smashes the glass. Doesn't say anything about it, but like, you know what that means, <laughs> you know? And then he directs Guino to a to kill. Yeah. yeah. And the power dynamic shifts in both of these movies were just always interesting to watch because so much of it is Tony just asserting his power because he can and that's how he takes control, but like seeing him do that both through these, you know, visuals, but through the acting from both of them from mm-hmm. Paul Muni and and Al Pacino, like you can literally see in the faces of of the two of them, as well as like the people that they're acting with, like the moment mm-hmm. that he takes control, you see it in everybody's face, and you know their demeanor just changes. And anyway, we don't want to get okay, back so you, into. You didn't have a favorite movie, did you? Have a favorite Tony? I liked Al Pacino better. I knew you were gonna say that. Well, you just want me to like the 1932 version because that's what you like. Al Pacino is like my favorite actor, and what? All right, all right, continue. And he's, like, so good. And it's not just me. It's This is just such an iconic performance. And whether it's, you know, wanting to imitate the way he says things or just thinking he's cool or having his poster up or, you know, all the songs that are about him, there's just something about him that, like, uh, like really is attractive to people. Al Pacino, like, it's not just a style thing. It's Al Pacino, I think, just totally brings it to that role. Whereas Paul Muni, I think he's great, too. Uh, It's, you know, to me, it's not as iconic a performance, whether that's because it came out forever ago or not. But also, I don't think uh, it's a subtle performance. You know, we see, like, the manic highs and lows of just his attitude, and we understand what's behind that. But like the depth of of his character we just don't get enough opportunity to see that because i think we don't have that long run time we don't have that relationship with his with his yeah no i i agree his character doesn't change like like we said certainly especially when held up against tony montana um who changes so much but i would have to take a page out of your book here david and say i don't think i could choose between paul mooney and uh and al pacino here there's something I can't quite describe about Paul Mooney on, on screen, but the intimidation he brings to some of those scenes with Cheska and with Johnny, it's very effective. And I think he, he really brought this iconic gangster to life. And I think we can certainly agree that we wouldn't have Al Pacino's Tony Montana without uh, Paul Mooney's. Tony Camonti. Like, literally, I know that we're saying that they're based on the same source material, but the 80s movie is just yeah. the remake of the 30s there would be movie. No, there yeah. would be no second adaptation of the book if yeah. there wasn't a first adaptation that was influential and good. Yeah. And I think that it's, it's a testament to both, you know, one, that they even made a remake and that it stayed so true to the story, it's, that's a testament to how important the 1932 movie is, but also that the 1983 movie 
has just totally eclipsed it in terms of popular culture for for people of our generation is also that I think that's a fair testament to to its qualities as well. All right, well, that's enough about that. How would you remake it if you were to do so? I've got the most scathingly brilliant idea. I have no idea. I've literally been trying to come up with a name for who I would want to cast as Tony because I think that's that's step one. Get your Tony, right? I think step one would be identify what you want to change about it. Hmm. And then from there you would think about, okay, then what political backdrop makes sense for this? And then, you know, start finding someone who would be able to direct and who would be able to to write and star in the movie? That is a tough question. I mean, it's all well and good for us to be talking about, like, how the 1930s movie was received by Italian-Americans and how the 1980s movie portrayed Cubans, but if we wanted a contemporary backdrop, then you're talking about real lives and real people today and how their communities would be, you know, portrayed. I mean, it feels very much like being a son of an immigrant is an aspect of his character. I think you could lose it, but, you know, that does lead to some questions of what choices would be made about the the setting mm-hmm. of this movie, which really just brings into clarity the, the responses at the time of the previous Scarface movies and why people would get so upset about right. their portrayals. And it's like, well, I'm writing this gangster movie. I've got to pick a community to write it about. And you're like, hmm, let's roll the dice. Let's do Italians. It's like, hey, you know? <laughs> yeah. Or, or, you know, whatever. So, yeah, I think that makes sense. Yeah. But I do think that at its core, it is an immigrant story. And I think it, that's sort of brought into the forefront by Tony's mom, who is still a little bit removed from putting herself out there in American society in the same way that her kids do and skeptical of I think the corrosive aspects of the American dream like the greed like the unrestricted capitalism the ownership that people feel over everything and the way that people go about getting what they want and it as a criticism of that you know you can do like Wall Street, you know, and I don't think it's a coincidence that Oliver Stone wrote this movie because I think Wall Street is like basically the same movie. It's a story of, you know, the American dream gone wrong and in particular like in the 80s when it seems like it went really wrong. But in the same way that like Gordon Gecko is seen as a hero to like all these nut job finance bros, it it has to have like that aspirational aspect to it. And I think that Tony being from an immigrant community is part of that. So, yeah, we don't have to say, like, oh, well, it would be really relevant if it was this. But I do think you would have to keep that. And yet, like, I mean, let's say, for instance, that it was a substitute for MS-13 sort of gang in the remake. I would just feel so uncomfortable with the potential for, like, racist interpretations of of the movie mm-hmm. even though i think that could be a movie about exactly what you're saying like aspirations and wanting to make a better life for yourself but using a an organization that 
causes such violence and issues in society, which I get is literally the plot of Scarface <laughs> that I'm describing here. I guess it's not a movie I would want to be in charge of remaking, although I would go see it. Yeah. Yeah, they were talking about doing a sequel, uh, Son of Tony or some title like that. So from what I could tell, they were talking about doing a sequel at some point in the last few years. I don't really know where it landed, but um, according to what I read in Wikipedia, it sounded like they were looking at Antoine Fuqua to direct. So he's sort of known for doing thrillers and crime movies, but maybe a little boy, a, a little bit more um, nuanced, maybe. And not that De Palma or Howard Hawks movies weren't nuanced, but uh, I just I thought that was an interesting choice. Yeah, I um I'm aware of some sequel or remake in the works. I'd heard that at some point the Coen Brothers were actually chosen to direct it, which uh, I'm not familiar with Fuqua, but he sounds like he'd be great for it. The Coen Brothers, my initial reaction is like, "Oh brother, where art thou?" and I forget that they actually do like serious movies too. Occasionally, <laughs> which yeah. is probably the tone they would take with this. But I was wondering for a moment of like Scarface with like George Clooney or something yeah, like that. Brad Pitt running around like, huh. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, so Fuqua sounds interesting. And I also had read, now that uh, you're mentioning this and reminding me, that Diego Luna had been uh, selected at some point to be the main character. You know what? I actually could see that. I feel like he's got some of the Pacino look to him too. I mean, he actually is of Mexican descent, which, again, talking about the accent and everything, it's nice to know that these days movies tend to be more judicious in their casting. So I think that could be cool, being able to do do something with people who aren't recognizably, like, not Cuban. Like, it was weird having F. Murray Abraham running around being this Cuban gangster, you know? Or, uh, I don't know, half the people in that movie, Al Pacino, famously not... Yeah. Cuban, you know, right? Not that he wasn't great, just that it is it can be a little distracting and it can kind of make those um those notices that oh we didn't intend to like mock anybody in this movie. It can make that mm-hmm. ring a little bit hollow. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'll also say I'm interested that we're not considering remaking it as a prohibition era movie or anything like that. Because I think there's something to it that is holding up a bit of a mirror to society and I mean we've talked so much about the politics of the movies and whether or not it's glorifying these aspects of society and I think if this movie is to be made again that's part of what making the movie is I agree I wouldn't want to set it in the past and have it be a period piece about something that happened to people that weren't us you know I think it should be about people that are us right you know, that's part of why it has to be about a current marginalized community, someone that is going to get mad when you make it and, you know, you're portraying them poorly because they're being portrayed poorly in the media anyway. Something that you can't wave off as, you know, this this happened to someone else or this is no longer relevant. And, and that's, again, why it has to be as violent as we're accustomed to seeing or, like, made with the social mores that that we're looking at, you know? Yeah, except for... I mean, this is going to sound so prudish of me, but the violence has really gotten out of hand, you know? 
also, I know we mentioned Tarantino earlier. I think it is viewed as an aesthetic choice sometimes. Mm-hmm. So I think it would be possible to make something graphic without going all Tarantino on it. You know what I mean? I don't know. Something about your question earlier of what if it was made later has introduced that question into my mind. And honestly, like, yeah, I do wonder what the uh, the people making the 1930s movie would do if they were just plopped into our era and making this movie. But I like uh, I like the sound of... Antoine Foucault. I and like... they were getting the Coen brothers to write it, I think. But oh, that was... Oh, okay. This is all old information. And so. it sounds like... It's just, it, did it get canceled or it's just like continuing to experience delays? I think it's in development hell. <sighs> Which is not, not good news because... We're liking everything we're hearing about it, you know, from star to director to writers, yeah. Yeah, although it's like, you've got two great movies, you know, when are when are you going to, like, remake two great movies and make a movie that's just as good? A Star is Born's done it. Uh, I hated the only one that I saw. <laughs> well, agree to disagree there. I will say I had never seen either of these movies, and I've, I enjoyed this, this one a lot, this whole podcast. All right. Well, I've been David. And this is Claire. Thanks for listening. Whose world is this? The world is yours. The world is yours. It's mine. It's mine. It's mine. Whose world is this? It's yours. It's mine. It's mine. It's mine. Whose world is this? The world is yours. The world is yours. I sit the dumb peak watching Gandhi till I'm charged and writing in my book of rhymes. All the words past the margin. The whole of mic I'm throbbing. Mechanical movement. Understandable smooth shit that murderers move with. The thief's theme. Play me at night, they won't act right. The fiend of hip hop has got me stuck like a crack pipe. The mind activation. React like I'm facing time like Pappy Mason with pins I'm embracing. Wipe the sweat off my dome, spit the phlegm on the streets. Sway Tim's on my feet. Makes my cipher complete weather cruising in a six cab. I'm on tarot deep. I can't call it. The beats make me falling asleep. I keep falling, but never falling six feet deep. I'm out for presidents to represent me. Say what? I'm out for presidents to represent me. Say what? I'm out for dead presidents to represent me. Who me? The world is this. The world is yours. The world is yours.